When we went through Isaiah, one of the turning points is right in the middle of the book. The king of Judah at the time was Hezekiah, and he became deathly ill. And he did something at that point which was very wise. He prayed for help. He prayed to God, asking God for help. And God answered and healed him and gave him another 15 years of life. And as he gets healed, after he gets healed, we can read at the end of chapter 38 in Isaiah, the wonderful song that Isaiah wrote, praising God for his goodness and kindness. But then as you flick over to chapter 39, no sooner has the song and the music finished, we see Hezekiah now do something monumentally stupid. He welcomes an envoy from Babylon and he gives them a tour of the city, including a tour of the treasury. Isaiah warns that this was a dumb idea, that putting your faith and your trust in Babylon would destroy you. And so in a space of a few sentences, we see Hezekiah do something wonderfully wise in praying to God for help and then do something astonishingly stupid by wanting to trust the Babylonians in alliance. Now, we're never given the exact details of Hezekiah's thinking, but you do have to wonder what was going through his mind. What decisions and choices did he go through, big and small, that shifted him from being the wise man to being a fool? And then it raises the question for ourselves. Am I going to be a wise man? Or am I going to be remembered for being a fool? How how do I go about making sure that I choose to do what is right and wise? This is the second sermon in the book of Proverbs. The first sermon covered just the first seven verses of chapter 1. And now we're leaping over to chapter 9. And in the parts that we've skipped, there is this long monologue between, uh, from a father to his son. And the father is imploring, imploring his son to stick with wisdom, choose the wise path. And all of that culminates then in chapter 9 and the offer of these two women. So how do we go about making sure that I choose to do what is right and wise? Well, first I have to understand these two women and then respond to the invitations that they're giving. So let's zoom into verses 1 to 6 of chapter 9, and our attention is on the first woman, Lady Wisdom. Now the first thing that we're told, or first thing that we're given, is a description of her home, her house, and it's astonishing. This woman has built her house and hewn her pillars. Hewn is an old word that means that she's cut her pillars to length and shaped them just right. So this is, we're reading at the beginning of this woman who of great strength and great resourcefulness. And then we're told that she has seven pillars indicating that this was a massive house. So she's a woman of strength, of resourcefulness and great wealth. And then in verse 2, we read of her feast, the slaughtering of her beasts, plural, in verse 2, says that this is not just a simple Sunday dinner family get-together. This is going to be a massive feast. There's going to be more food here than at a 13-course Asian wedding banquet. You know those. We've all been to those. What's the first thing you do when you get invited to those things? You look at the menu, right? You look at what you're going to eat. And then you notice the fried noodles and fried rice right at the end, because no one has room for them. 
then the easiest, thing, the easiest things to put in the takeaway boxes to take home. No, this, this course, this feast that wisdom is serving up, it's going to be bigger than that. And she's not calling up Domino's to make a massive order of pizzas. No, there's no junk food here. This banquet, this is a banquet, and it gives us a picture of the overflowing generosity of Lady Wisdom. Then we're told that she's mixing her wine. She's blending her wine with spices, putting out the best of the best. This is not wine from a box. This is the best reserve blends. There's no doubt that this is going to be the feast to end all feasts. And it's going to be held in a massive home that she has tastefully and wonderfully put together and decorated. And then next in verse 3, we read that she sends out her young women with the invitation. Now, the wording in our Bibles is a little vague, but there's a sense that we're meant to see that as the young women are calling out, it's wisdom, wisdom's voice, which is speaking. Wisdom is giving the personal invitation. And then notice in verse 3 that she calls out from the highest places in the town. I want you to take a note of that because we're going to return to it in just a moment. Highest places in the town is where she calls out from. But to come down to verse 4 and take a look at the invitation. The invitees are the simple, the person who lacks sense. Remember last week we looked at this and we saw how the simple are not stupid people, but those who are just less mature, those who are young, people who are teachable. And what is it that wisdom wants to teach? She wants to invite the simple to come in, and in verse 6, they are encouraged to leave their simple ways and become wise. See, come, eat of my bread, drink of my wine, leave your simple ways and become wise. What an offer. We're not told yet what folly has to offer, but wow, her part, Folly's party better be even better than this if we're going to pass up this invitation. And so we jump down to verse 13. And if you didn't notice in the Bible reading, notice now that the way verses 13 to 18 are written are meant to echo and parallel verses 1 to 6. Folly is being held up as a clear and direct alternative to wisdom. And notice as we go through verses 13 to 18 that folly is almost exact, the exact opposite to wisdom. First, where Lady Wisdom was a woman of strength and resourcefulness, folly is nothing like her. Verse 13, folly is loud, seductive, and knows nothing. She's all talk and no sense, all talk and no wisdom. Verse 14, where wisdom built her house with her strength and her resourcefulness and her wealth, folly, well, she has a house. And she seems to be sitting at the door of her house, sitting at the door, calling out to passers-by, perhaps indicating that she's lazy, which in Proverbs is a bad thing. Too too lazy even to stand to greet passers-by. It's as though she's sitting there calling out, expecting us to be impressed with her already. And then notice in the second half of verse 14 where she sits on the highest places of the town. Do you remember, this is also where wisdom has built her house in verse 3. Now, whenever you see the words highest place in the Bible, you're meant, or high places, sorry, you're meant to think of worship. 
In the Old Testament, the altars to Baal, the false gods that Israel was so tempted to worshipping, their altars were built in the high places on top of hills and mountainsides. Jerusalem is a city on a hill, and the temple was at the heart of the city. So the temple of Yahweh is built in a high place. High place is synonymous with worship. And so what do we have here? See, wisdom and folly, they're not just competing giving us competing invitations to dinner. They're giving us competing invitations to worship. In the background to all the discussion about wisdom and folly, which takes up most of this passage, we've got this question of worship. Who you worship will reflect whether you are wise or a fool. Notice folly's invitation in verse 16 is word for word the same as wisdom's. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, right? Folly is unoriginal, uncreative. She's offering up a cheap imitation when wisdom is offering up the real deal. Notice her feast on offer, where wisdom offered an overflowing, sumptuous banquet. Folly is offering bread and water. Hmm, tempting. But it's a twisted sort of offering as well. Stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Wisdom provided a costly meal out of her own wealth. Folly steals this food for her meal. And then finally notice where this meal finishes. Stolen food might be sweet and pleasant, but folly's meal leads to death. See verse 18. The dead are her party guests. They are in the depth of Sheol, the place of the dead. The invitation and message from these women is the same. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. But there is where the similarities end. Wisdom built her house. Folly just sits there expecting us to be impressed. Wisdom offers meat and wine. Folly offers bread and water. Wisdom's followers find life. Folly's followers find death. Now, when you put the option like that, it should seem pretty obvious which you should choose, right? In the book of Proverbs, in the first nine chapters, there's a monologue happening, and the father is saying to his son constantly in these opening chapters, choose wisdom. And now he's presenting the choice in the starkest way possible. Follow wisdom and you'll have life. Follow, cho- uh, choose folly and you'll find death. So who in their right mind would choose death? And yet if we're honest, if we're honest with ourselves, we often choose the house of folly. If we're often with ourselves, I think we'd all need to admit that we don't always act wisely. In fact, probably more often than not, we act in very unwise and foolish ways. We act sinfully. If you read over chapters 1 to 9, you'll see a whole range of instructions, a whole range of encouragements that my sinful heart keeps forgetting. In chapter 3, the father encourages son to honor God with his wealth. But if I'm honest, I don't always do that. The spending of my money is often self-centered rather than God-centered. In chapter 6, the father encourages his son to not be lazy, to work hard. 
I hear that, and then I go off to feed the monster called procrastination, who is a very tall and big monster because I fed it so much. And don't get me started on my many other foolish failures as a husband, as a father, a brother, and a son. And that's me. How about you? I think if we're honest, we'll admit that even as Christians, we visit the house of folly far too often. We choose wrong. And so if we're all left, if, if all we're left with is a choice between choosing right and wrong, wisdom and folly, then we'd all be in trouble. Why? Because my sinful heart constantly pulls me towards the house of folly, towards choices that are stupid. What do I need then? I need somehow to be dealt, this, have the sinful heart dealt with. I need to have my sins forgiven and forgotten. To know that my stupid choices and my sinful choices have been forgiven and forgotten. I couldn't live with the shame of knowing that my sins could be brought up at any moment to smack me in the face. And then I need a new heart. And I need a constant and I need constant help to make the wise choices in life. And I thank God that in Christ Jesus I am forgiven. My sins are forgotten. I have a new heart. And by the Holy Spirit, I am constantly being helped to make the wise choices in life, along with His church. And if you have put your faith and your trust in Jesus, then the same thing has happened to you. You are forgiven. Your sins are forgotten, never to be shamed by them again. God will never bring them up to smack you in the face with them. You are given a new heart and a helper, the Holy Spirit himself, who will be there to help you make the wise choices. And we have each other, the church, to help us grow in wisdom together as well. And if you're a Christian, you're also a child of God, a son and daughter. And so when the father speaks here in Proverbs to his son, we can hear in those loving words our father in heaven speaking to us, his sons and daughters. And that also means that you can begin to put into practice these words and encouragements. It's not as though your situation is now completely hopeless. See, in our passage this morning, verses 7 to 12 function as sort of the applications, the invitation of the women bookend or sandwich this middle part. And in this middle part, we're given further encouragements and also some warnings. So you begin at verses 7 to 9. And it's pretty straightforward. You can see there uh, the consistent action throughout, highlighted in yellow, correcting, rebuking, and teaching. And there are two main actors, the scoffer in red and the wise men in green. And you can see their two main reactions and how it kind of works together. Now, the first warning, then, is regarding the fool. The scoffer or mocker. The scoffer here is, is someone who doesn't accept correction. Someone who thinks they're really, others really need their opinion. Someone who is easily offended and above other people. The warning here is given is that if you try to correct or rebuke a scoffer, then you'll end up hurting yourself. Right? They'll abuse you. They'll cause you injury and they'll hate you. Maybe it's out of insecurity or maybe it's out of, as the second half of verse 7 says, plain wickedness. 
But the advice given here is that it's not worth your time, your energy, your effort to try and correct and rebuke a scoffer. Now you read that and you go, yeah, that's easy to think of the person out there or or online, beyond the walls of our church, the outside hardcore atheist internet troll. Right? There's obvious wisdom there and truth there in not correcting them. Right? You see that comment on the news article? Not worth your time and effort. You see that Facebook debate that's raging on over there? Not worth your time and effort to get into. But I've noticed in my years of ministry that the scoffer and the mocker can exist very easily in here. In the church, the Christian scoffer, and for those listening online, I've done the air quotes around Christian. The person, not quite the outsider, but not acting like a true insider. These people do need to be corrected because they are supposed to be within God's people. And so we need to test our hearts to see if any of this echoes or resonates. The Christian scoffer, picking up the language here in verses 7 to 9, the Christian scoffer abuses others, sometimes to your face, sometimes behind your back. As an example of this, one of my friends, as an extreme example of this, one of my friends uh, in another church was nominated to be the treasurer of his church. He took on the role reluctantly, partly because he was so young, you know, we were both 22, 23 around that time, and partly because there was no one else who was willing to do it. We soon learned why. So he took it on, and one evening he was actually unable to make it to one of their church council meetings, the treasurer, important person meant to be there, but he was unable to make it. After that meeting finished, that evening... One of the elders of that church came over to his house. He was living at home at the time. Late that night, blasting him through the front door for missing the meeting. It got so heated that my friend's non-Christian father had to come out and calm the Christian elder down. We talked a bit about it afterwards. We couldn't work out any justifiable reason for that abuse. Abuse can take another form uh, where the Christian scoffer will injure your reputation by spreading lies and falsehood, most of it behind your back. They quote you economically and unflatteringly. They gossip and lie and they will hate you. Instead of choosing to love you, they feed their dislike of you. Instead of choosing to give you the benefit of the doubt, they assume you have negative motives. Years ago, I had to correct, I had to sit down with a guy, with one of the Christian guys at our church, and and correct him and ask him some hard questions about why he was dating a non Christian girl. If you haven't If you're not aware of this, it's not a good idea. If you need more clarification, come and speak to me afterwards. But he was in a relationship with a non-Christian girl, and I had to sit him down and go, what's going on? The conversation went south very quickly because he began to twist my words negatively. Every time I said something, he would then rephrase it in the most negative way possible and throw it back at me as though he was searching for some evil intention in my words. 
if you correct or rebuke any one of these Christians, you'll receive abuse, injury, and maybe even hatred. They act more like the scoffer than the wise man. But because they claim to be insiders, we are told again and again in the New Testament, rebuke these people, point out their sin, point them to the grace of Jesus and call them to repent. After that, if they refuse to repent, have nothing to do with them. Treat them as the outsider if they continue to be the scoffer and mocker. And then as I was thinking through this sermon through the week, I was like, there's a couple of other types of people in church who aren't quite scoffers, but don't exactly fit into the wise in this passage either. And I figured I'll just talk about them anyway because I won't have a chance to talk about them. So here we go, right? It's the Christian who is theologically literate but relationally illiterate. Someone who knows lots of stuff can give all the right answers in Bible study, maybe even insightful answers, but they are always just constantly cold towards other Christians, constantly looking down on them. They're abrupt, sometimes a bit rude, opinionated, and they show very little humility. And then you have those who just don't take feedback well. You know, sometimes when we're in a situation and we do something wrong, life's a bit of a mess, you know, feedback can feel like a bit of a smack in the face. I get that. But there are certain types of people in church even who just cannot take any negative feedback at all. They'll explain away their shortcomings. They'll shift the blame onto someone or something else. They never own that they've made a mistake or done something wrong. Someone or something else is always to blame. I want to raise up these two types of people, partly because as you look at what the wise person is like, they're not acting like the wise person. And it seems in this passage that you're either a wise person or a scoffer. Either or. So what does the wise person look like? Have a look at the second half of verse 8. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. A wise man loves correction. Wow. And they love the person who corrects them. Let's pause on that for a moment. I find that really hard. I find it much easier to love the person I get along with, who makes me feel valued and encouraged, who lifts me up and puffs up my ego. I'm not a big fan of receiving correction or rebuke. <laughs> I'm not walking into every conversation going, hey, how are you going this week? Give me some rebuke. <laughs> Even as a pastor, there have been many times I've needed correction and rebuke, and each time it hasn't been the most funnest thing. And here we're told that the wise person comes to love the person who does that. And I think it's because when, you, when you're being rebuked, right, or when you're being corrected, you've sinned, you've made a mistake, you've done something wrong, 
And it takes quite a lot of love and quite a lot of courage to confront someone. We're Asians. We're bad at that, right? We're really bad at humbly, lovingly approaching someone to correct them. No wonder the wise person loves this person because they've done it out of love. You know, this is not, this is not for the rebuker to go in and go, you know, guns are blazing, this is what you've done wrong. But in the years that I've had to be rebuked, it's taken a bit of time, but I've come to love the people who've done that because I've recognized how hard and difficult it is and how loving it is to rebuke someone. They've pointed out my sin, and then they've pointed me to the grace and forgiveness we have in Jesus. A truly wise person is someone who humbly receives rebuke and loves the rebuker. They examine their hearts and how they're responding to criticism, and it gives them a chance to grow in wisdom from it. Then in verse 9, we see that the truly wise person is not content with their current level of wisdom and maturity. They desire to become wiser and increase in learning even through correction. If this is your first year in Australia, on Tuesday we have the race that stops the nation, the Melbourne Cup. It's a horse race, biggest gambling event of the year. But let me encourage you to watch it because the horses are absolutely gorgeous. They are beautiful beasts. It's, they're phenomenal to watch them race. And as you're watching, you might notice that some of the horses have those things on their eyes. They're not blind. They're called blinkers, right? It helps them to focus so that they don't get distracted by the things that are going on around them. It helps them focus ahead on the track. But obviously that means that they've got blind spots. So the horse needs the rider to point to know what the blind spot, what's happening in the blind spots. We all have blind spots, We all have areas of our lives that we are completely blinded to. Areas of sin, areas of immaturity, areas of our words and how they're coming out that are are just not wise and godly. And they're called blind spots because we can't see them. But you know what? We're really good at seeing the blind spots of others. I know this very well. Because when I hear a really great sermon being preached, right, I'll sit there and I'll listen to Ben preach and I go, this is so good. You know what? I wish so-and-so was here to hear this. They'd be so rebuked by it. You ever done that? We're so good at picking the blind spots of others. But here's what the wise man will do. They will welcome and love correction. Because it means they have a chance to learn and grow. They will welcome someone to teach them because it means that they will have a chance to increase in learning. How do you get a degree from a university? Like Josh, right, he's graduated, like the chairperson. He just graduated. He's, well, he's just finished. He's going to graduate soon. Right, he, he did five years of medicine at Griffith. How did he get that degree? Right, his, I'll tell you how he didn't get it. He didn't get it by going to Griffith for five years and dressing like a student and hanging around the students and trying to blend in. That's not how you get a degree at uni. You need to go to a class. You need to be taught. And in the same way, you can't grow in wisdom 
just by going to church and hanging out with Christians. You need to hear teaching and you need to receive it, to understand it, and then apply it. You have to be taught, you have to be corrected, and sometimes you have to be rebuked. But the wise person welcomes all of that as an opportunity to learn and grow. So, you've got the way of the fool and the way of the wise. And then verse 10 summarizes how you choose the way of wisdom, how to choose the way of wisdom. You begin with the fear of the Lord. Last week we began touching on what this means. And I said these two words, trust and terror. Right? Fearing God is recognizing the immensity of his power, respecting his sovereign authority, being in awe of his majesty, and being able to trust him like a child should trust their father. Recognize his power, respect his authority, in awe of his majesty, trust him like a child. That is what it means to fear God. And when you fear God, it liberates you, truly. It truly liberates you to be humble and to listen. It liberates you from the need of defending yourself and allows you to hear and rebuke and instruct and teach and receive all that is before you. When you fear God, there is no need to fear anyone else. When you fear God, there is no need to fear man or man's opinion because you know that God's opinion of you matters the most. And then that liberates you or is meant to liberate you so that you can receive any critique, rebuke or correction. Fearing God is the beginning of wisdom. Knowing God is true insight. There is no wisdom apart from knowing and being in relationship with God. And it comes with a reward and a responsibility. The reward is there in verse 11. Lady Wisdom speaks and says that by, by her, following her, your days will be multiplied and years added to your life. See, this true life, abundant life, eternal life is found in following wisdom. Following wisdom leads to eternal life. Remember, following folly leads to death. With wisdom there is life. So choose life. And then there is responsibility that comes with this in verse 12. In this very enigmatic verse, the author seems to be emphasizing this. You have the responsibility to choose between wisdom and folly. He's saying that if you are wise, you'll choose wisdom. But if you scoff, you alone will bear the consequences for it. If you make the wrong choice, then you have no one else to blame but yourself. After eight chapters of advice, Proverbs is laying before us a choice, an obvious choice. Choose wisdom. Make sure that you see the invitations for what they truly are and pursue wisdom. And for Christians today, you can choose wisdom. If you have placed your trust and your faith in Jesus as your Savior, if Jesus is our Savior, then he should also be our Lord, and he is the one that we listen to. He is wisdom personified, calling out to his banquet to come and eat his bread, for he is the bread of life. To come and drink his wine, for in his cup is the blood of the new covenant. Jesus then gives us the final word on making a choice, a choice between the wise course of action and the foolish one. 
as Alice read out for us, those final words in the Sermon on the Mount, which center on hearing and obeying his words. In the final words of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus pictures two builders with two houses, and he says the wise man is the person who listens to his words and obeys them, like the wise man who builds on a house of rock, and when the storm comes and beats down on it, it stands. If you hear Jesus' words and obey them, you'll be wise. But he says the foolish man is the person who hears his words and does not obey them. Like the foolish builder who builds his house on sand and when the storm comes, it crashes down. So over to you. Which invitation have you taken up? And perhaps more importantly, how is it showing in your life? You're either wise or you're a scoffer. There doesn't seem to be any place in between. Let me pray. Father in heaven, again, our simple plea for this week, as we have heard from your word, is help us to be wise. Amen.